Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Uh, I am really, 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 did I say really thrilled about my uh, uh, guest today on Soul Talk. I have been eagerly anticipating and waiting and we've been trying to get her on for a while now and just feels like the stars aligned. Uh, someone I have so much uh, respect for, uh, for the impact she's had in my life without even knowing. Uh, many, many years ago, I used to go to the Omega Institute uh, outside of New York uh, and attend conferences uh, quite often and uh, had a profound impact. And, and so I'm just overjoyed, if you can't tell, folks. She's the author of several books, including Cassandra Speaks. Uh, Broken Open, which is a book I read uh, a few years back, and it was very, very powerful. If you haven't read that, it's amazing. And Maro, she's the co-founder of the Omega Institute, and uh, I'm going to let her share the rest. Welcome, Elizabeth Lesser. Welcome to Soul Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been really looking forward to meeting you. It's great to have you on finally. I've been excited to just tap into some of your wisdom and your wealth of experience and just all you've learned along the, along the path of being human. And so, you know, there may be some folks that may not know your, your journey and there's, there's many questions I have, but I would love to start just, I'm always curious about people's origins and kind of how they got on the spiritual path. Was it some, something where your parents were really spiritual? Was there an event that happened? Something, you know, many times we get onto the spiritual path where there's some challenging or traumatic event. And so tell us a bit about how it started and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, it was the opposite of what you said. Maybe your parents were very spiritual. My parents were atheists. My parents were intellectuals and they sort of had this equation in the family. If you were spiritual or religious, you weren't smart. And the goal in life was to be smart. And so I just was a little kid. I was just born with a longing inside of me. I, I didn't even know the word spiritual. I just thought, wow, life is such a mystery. Where, where did we come from? Where do you go when you die? And how do you live in the in-between, in the bookends? <laughs> the mystery of where did we come from? The mystery of where did we go? And then what do we do with this life? Like, does it have any meaning? Mm. Uh, we're supposed to be nice and good, but what about all the other feelings inside of us? I was looking for some answers, and my parents and my sisters, I came from a big family. Everyone thought I was nuts. I <laughs> would, like, tag along to mass with my Catholic neighbors and come home like on Ash Friday, Ash Wednesday, one of those days, with a smudge on my forehead, and they would just all get hysterical laughing, and and I would like listen to gospel music. My, the first record I ever bought was mm -hmm. Marian Anderson, gospel mm -hmm. music, and she would sing about like the promised land and going over to the campground. And I was like, what does this mean? I want to go there. I want to go with these people. Mm. But my family was just very much the intellectual atheist past. When I got to college, mm. it was a time of great um, social justice and anti-war and feminism. And I got very involved in that. But it turned violent. And that was the same time in American history, the early 1970s, when like gurus from the East were like washing up on the shores of America. And I yeah. was like, ah, that, 
That's what I want. Some yeah. sort of meditative technology to help me look within for answers. So yeah. that's how it all started for me. Mm. Did you find uh, technology? Did you find something that seemed to work? Or was oh yeah, lots. What lots was like what, what was like the first thing that 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 when you tried maybe something connected? Was it a meeting with a specific guru or specific technique? I'm curious where that entry. Well, the the very first um, introduction to me was Zen Buddhism. Zen was like the first kind of path from the East to come. Now, even before I got involved in Eastern spirituality, I started reading Christian mystics, mm. Thomas Merton, yes. um, things like that. So I was already kind of primed. And then I started sitting, I was 18 years old, uh, Zen mm. Buddhism. And I loved it. I loved this idea that um, how you hold your body and uh, how you breathe and how you bring discipline. I, I loved all that, but there was also something kind of empty in it to me. And when I discovered my first teacher, Pierre Vilayat Khan, who was a Sufi teacher, wow. Sufism being yes. the mystical dimension of Islam. I've heard of him, yeah. It was all about heart yes. and dance yes. and connection. And that was very, very appealing to me. So that yeah. early combination of the discipline of Zen with the kind of ecstatic expression of God through the Sufi path, those were the two formative paths for me. Amazing, amazing. I've, I've had a connection with the Hazrat Iniyat Khan. Uh, yes, that was so. his father. That was, that was yeah. Pirvalayat's father. Yeah, yeah. I read his book when I was first in India, all about the sound, you know, and yes. the sound. It just had such a heart expansive impact uh, in my life. So, how did that lead to Omega? Well, um, I was so attracted to this Sufi teacher, Pirvalayat mm. Khan, the son mm. of the man whose book you just talked about. He gathered students around him, as many gurus did, but he was a very different kind of teacher. He wasn't mm. really a guru. He wasn't looking for that kind of devotion. He was more like an amazing university professor, and we were his students. He was raised in France with this Indian father, Hazrat Inayat Khan, an American mother, in uh and he was surrounded, he was, he was like a real Renaissance man. He was a musician. Mm. He was a student. He spoke seven languages. He had studied all kinds of spiritual paths. And when he came to America, he attracted around him students who were um, kind of like type A spiritual seekers. <laughs> like we were very like uh, interested in all sorts of things. He was a great teacher, and he had the idea to start Omega Institute. He thought, mm -hmm. you know, we're all living communally in this very alternative way, but most people in America won't want to be like this. But we're learning so much and melding so much from the East and the West from science and spirit, medicine, healing. He was introducing us to early on. I mean, this was a time in America where yoga and mindfulness and healthy food, all of this was seen as weird hippie stuff. Wow. Wow. And he thought, let's start an institute that gives some clout and some structure to this wow. so that people can come and learn but they don't have to like give their whole life to it. Yeah. And that's, um, that's how it started. Mm. So it was kind of an inspiration from him. And I mean, it doesn't sound like you had done anything like this before. Was it, was it, was it difficult in the beginning? I'm just so fascinated with the, 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 the origins of it. like, how do you well, start first, a retreat center without any experience? And like, we had no like? experience. We had zero experience. We were kids, first of all. We were in our early 20s. Huh. My ex husband, who is the co founder, had just finished medical school. Oh and he was God. one of the early uh, Western trained doctors interested in alternative health. Mm. And I had 
graduated with a degree in childhood education. I didn't know anything. We didn't know anything about running a business, taking care of a facility, budgeting, timelines, mm. uh, marketing. We didn't know any of this. So the thing is, it started tiny, just an idea, just a few classes. And mm. there were these teachers out there who had nowhere to teach. Somebody, let's say like Deepak Chopra, who's now known as yeah. around the world, he had he had just finished medical school himself. He he was like, had these amazing ideas of blending Eastern mm. thought with Western medicine because he was a trained Western doctor. Mm. He had nowhere to talk. He was like, wow, great, I'll come. And other people like that who now you would pay, you know, wow. $50,000 for a keynote talk, they, they didn't really want anything, which was good because we didn't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> we just had a handful of interested students. And then year after year, very quickly we grew. Like maybe the first year, a hundred people came in the second year, 700 people came and then wow. 3000 and wow. we needed to buy our own facility. And wow. so I always think of Omega as like a friendly monster that we've been running after wow. all these years. It's, I didn't know it started like that because when I went there, I mean, it was this operation and, and everything was just amazing grounds and it was just, Incredible. Well, that's the way everything starts. You know, Facebook was a bunch of guys in a dorm room. Yeah. Uh, now it rules the world. Amazon yeah. was a little online bookstore. And I'm not comparing Omega to that size, but we were just an idea. We were yeah. an idea ahead of its time that some sort of blessing, mm. both angelic and human, mm. uh, got together and and made it be something bigger than we ever thought it would be. For those listening that may also, let's say they have a dream and a nudging to go in a direction and maybe it's to start a, a retreat center. Maybe it's to, you know, launch a career in a certain direction, but they don't have the experience. They don't know how, maybe they don't, they don't have the finances. Um, I, I, it's often fear that stops us. Right. And, and so, how can that person move through the fear? How did you, I mean, did you feel fear when you were starting Omega? And how can a person who has an idea and a vision, maybe they feel a little afraid because uh, it's going into the unknown. How can they mm -hmm. deal with the fear so that they don't let the fear stop them? Well, it's a two-pronged answer to me. One, I always come back to this quote by the... Um, civil rights leader Howard Thurman. Do you know Howard yeah, Thurman's love, work? Love Howard Thurman's work. I'm so surprised he's not better known in our Jeez. in our realm, our genre. Yeah. He was Dr. King's mentor and his Jeez. writings are so beautiful. Oh, so and beautiful. he says, don't ask what the world needs. Mm. Ask what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs are people who have come alive. So often we think, okay, what does the world need? Like if we're a social justice minded person, we're like, oh, the world needs me to be like uh, someone who's, you know, helping children in the city who can't read, you know, but is that what would make you come alive? Or maybe you think, well, I need, I need it to make this much money in six years and but the first question is, what makes you come alive? Mm. What is alive in you? You. You don't have to be like that other person. You don't have to attend to every problem in the world. You're never going to get anywhere unless whatever you're doing is making you come alive. Mm. And lo and behold, that's what the world needs. Mm. So that's the first thing. And the other thing is... I could never have done it by myself. I'm not very skilled at a lot of things, and I'm very skilled at a few things. But Omega or any vision needs lots of different skills and people. So I'm, I'm a team player. I, I know that 
I could never have done what I did without my ex-husband, who was the uh, business brains, the financial brains, and, and mm -hmm. a very courageous person who just like kept going for it. Mm. I was more of the creative, mm. inclusive, thinking about the people, the staff, but, and then there were lots of other people. Mm. And uh, it's, it's really good to be in collaboration with other people. That doesn't mean there can't be bosses and one person in charge, but to, to be with an empowered, lively group of people where you fill in the holes for each other and learn yeah. to ask for help and give constructive feedback, like that's very important. You just triggered a, a question just now that I wasn't going to ask, but um, obviously you've worked with people and staff and teachers and egos and, and, and you know, <laughs> egos. And so what have you learned from, from I guess, managing people, team building, and, and dealing with all the different egos and personalities? Like kind of if you could share some of your secrets uh, that you've learned, maybe even some mistakes you've made. and Yeah. Well, you know, it's been fascinating being in business in a quote unquote spiritual uh, work. <laughs> right. So there's this assumption, oh, well then there wouldn't be any egos and everyone will just get along. Wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> Power and money and fame, they corrupt no matter what arena you're playing in. So mm -hmm. something I learned so early on, I was so young when I learned it, the so-called enlightened ones and experts would come to teach. And very early, my expectation that just because they were teaching about loving kindness didn't mean necessarily they were all that loving or kind. Mm. Just because they were talking about um, relationships, mm didn't mean they had great relationships. It meant that um, often what, you know, there's a, a saying, we teach what we most need to learn and yes. we are our own worst student. <laughs> uh, I learned early on to stop expecting the people I worked with on the teaching end of things to be perfect, mm. that it was okay, that they were flawed, that they were great teachers, but not necessarily perfected human beings, that that wasn't the point anyway, to become yes. a perfected human being, mm. but to have some sort of integrity and honesty and authenticity was what I was looking for in a person. And then in terms of a staff, our staff, I think the mistake I made and many young people make is over idealism that, you know, nobody needs to be in charge here. There's mm -hmm. no need yeah. for a leader, that we're all doing this together. I, I, I'm a believer in some form of hierarchy, mm. organization, and then a leadership that the whole goal of being a leader is to bring the people working with you up mm. so that they too become leaders. But leadership and structure is important in an organization. And it took me a while to understand that and not think mm. that everyone was going to have, you know, equal say in decision-making just yeah. doesn't work it after a while. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. You know, we're going through some, uh, as, as, as you, we, we know, some intense times on planet earth this last year, year and a half. Uh, last years, but especially last year was intense for a lot of people, 2020 and the pandemic and COVID. And I think um, lo lots of folks might be feeling broken down, you know, uh, by what's been happening. Uh, deaths, uh, loss of job, uncertainty. And so for those that may be feeling broken down, not necessarily like broken open, they're feeling broken down, broken closed, so to speak, uh, uh, maybe they're, they're feeling hopeless or helpless. Um, they've lost dreams, visions, not sure where to go. Um, what advice could you give 
to those who are feeling that way during this time. Maybe they feel like giving up and, and, and just feeling disempowered. Uh, what advice could you give to that person? Well, certainly during this year, I have been that person. Mm. <laughs> I have had moments of great hopelessness and fear and Omega had to shutter its doors a year ago. We are, we are struggling to oh. survive. We yeah. don't know if we'll even be able to open this year. We're hoping to, wow. but to, to be a place-based organization where people eat together and mm -hmm. sit in a classroom close to each other. And the whole thing is about developing intimacy in a room so you can trust wow. each other and learn that way. It, you know, it's like, oh, whoops, wrong, wrong business model for COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there have been times when I've said to myself, oh, well, a lot of businesses make it to 40 years, which we are, and then they close and that's okay. And then I'd be like, hell no, like strong backbone woman, mm. and we're going to get through this. Um, so what I would say to people riding this time of great unknown uncertainty, mm. we don't like uncertainty, human beings. We don't like the unknown, which makes life on earth difficult since it's all unknown. Mm. And we, we, every stage of life, you just, you know, like, the comedian George Carlin said, just when I found out the meaning of life, they changed it. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and I, I feel like that at so many stages of my life. When I was young, when I was a mother, oh, now I know what to do. And then they completely change. They turn into teenagers. Then they leave. Then every stage of life is full of the unknown. And I, I have used my spiritual practice to feel the fear of the unknown, let it go through my body, not fight it, relax into the mystery. I, that is my mantra, relax into the mystery. The spiritual path is not about figuring anything out. If, if anyone had answers to any of this, we would have all bought them. We, we would have definitely bought them. <laughs> but so... So part of the, the, the beauty of spiritual practice is learning how to relax into not knowing and being open, being a wide open eye in this mysterious realm and knowing that the person before you is suffering also. People may pretend that they're okay with uncertainty, but no one is. Mm. So... Um, Strong back, soft front is what the Buddhists say. A strong backbone and a very soft, open front. That's what broken open is, that you can be both strong and not knowing what the heck is going on all at the same time. Strong back, soft front. How do you keep the faith amidst this time? You know, even though you're talking about Omega, and I really appreciate you sharing, you know, just the challenge. I can, I can imagine like, wow, you know, you built something for 40 years and then the exact model, which is connection, community, people, touching, feeling, big hugging, like <laughs> it's gone. And it, you can't quite get that online. It's not, I mean, you can get education online, but you know, I remember being in Omega and, and, and the relationships, the connection, the camaraderie, you know, with nature, with, with nature it's just, it, it's not just through a computer screen. It's not just information. It's a transmission. It's a feeling. And so how, how do you, how do you, and how does someone keep the faith? You know, how do they, how do they develop the faith and the trust when the experience of life seems to be going in a different direction? Mm. Well, I guess the question is faith in what? Mm. Um, I have a faith that no matter what happens, there's a nugget of uh, wisdom to be learned in it. Mm. There's um, an outcome that my tiny little brain cannot fathom. 
I've had enough experiences in life where what I thought was going to destroy me, mm-hmm. when I look back later, it was like, wow, I think I would have chosen it anyway. Look what happened. Now, when I'm in the midst of it, like let's say my divorce, right? so hard, so not what I would have chosen, terrifying, going against everything in my family that was sacred, being so alone, financially scared, having two children, having to, to deal with a broken family. I would not have chosen that. But when I look back now, all these years later, that was the moment where I grew up, mm-hmm. where I learned to stand on my own, where I had to look at myself and say, what did you do to make this happen? Don't just blame other people. What could you have done better? What choices do you want to make now? That was a terribly hard time that I now would never trade. It grewed me up. And then my sister got very sick and I ended up being her donor for her bone marrow transplant. Would I have wanted to have to go through that and my sister to suffer and then my sister to die my beloved little sister, I, I, it was another one of those experiences where it brought such, such hard wisdom into my life. And um, so what do I have faith in? I have faith that no matter what happens, I'll find something to help me grow. And also who knows why these things happen? I don't yes. begin to know. They are some sort of fierce grace, as Ramdas called his stroke, fierce mm. grace. Mm. And I trust in the grace. Wow, I love that. And that and, and if somebody would say that to me when I was suffering so deeply, you know, you, there's a reason for this. I would probably punch them. So it's not a good idea to give that message when someone's in the fire. Yes, yes. But it is a good idea when we are in the fire to hang on as much as we can to that little bit of water, that little bit of grace that is there. Mm, I love that. Yeah, the willingness to, to not know. Uh, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. How does someone, let's say they're in a moment of difficulty or challenge, things are falling apart, relationship is falling apart, business, career is falling apart. How do they know when it's time to persevere through it? And and like, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to make this happen versus, you know what? Maybe it, it's it's time to really like let go now. How does How do we discern? Well, you are asking someone who it's taken a really long time for me to figure this out. (laughs) I'm in my 60s. This has not been my strength. I am a holder honor. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I would say when my sister was ill and dying and I was her bone marrow donor, that was an enormous lesson in what you just said, in how do you know I kept thinking there was something I could do. There's something I can do. And a friend of mine said to me at one point, excuse me, you gave her your bone marrow. Mm. Is there really something else you can do? And who are you to think that you have all the answers here and can do something? There's lots of other forces at work. Mm. There's everything from other people to angels Mm. to spirits, to the universe itself, to your sister. Like, at some point, each one of us has done the best we can, and we have to give it over to the other forces. And um, I always go a little too far into trying to save the day. (laughs) And since I go too far... I get the message that I've gone too far, you know, either I don't feel well or I'm turning into a raving idiot, you know, crazy woman. So if you sit still in the midst of a decision like that, 
and mm. really feel in your body and get feedback from other people. Have I done enough? Mm. Do I have to give it over now to the other forces? Mm. You know, the poet Rilke said, in the difficult are the friendly forces. Mm. And at some point, asking those friendly forces to tell the story of why they, why this, why is this happening? And, and asking them for help. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and then at some point you just have to leap. You have to leap into the unknown. Mm. And that unknown could be, no, I'm not giving up. Or that unknown could be, I'm going to let go a little. See what yeah. happens. Yeah. Whew, beautiful. Um, let's say someone is, they've let go. Uh, maybe it's a relationship, you know, they've, they've, they've let go. Or they, they have a dream and they said, it's not, it's not to be, I'm letting go. I think many times um, there can be some grief that comes with letting go or something not happening, or what you thought was going to be not manifesting. And so right. yeah. talk to us a bit about the grief, because it feels like it's often something we, as human beings, try so hard to avoid. You know, we distract ourselves from it. We drink it away, work it away, social media it away, so we don't have to feel the grief. And so talk to me a bit about dealing with loss and, 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 and dealing with the grief and how mm. we can process that in a, in a real way. Mm -hmm. I love the word grief. I love the word mourning, mm. lamentations, all the old ancient words about wearing your love as a badge of uh, wearing grief. Like grief is a badge of how well you loved you wouldn't feel grief if you hadn't given your heart to something. Mm. You'd be like, eh, whatever. Um, so that raw, sad feeling in the heart, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Buddhist who wrote my favorite spiritual book, which is called Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior, he said that the warrior has a heart of sadness. And mm. the first time I read that, I was pretty young and I had a sad heart. And I thought I was supposed to cover up that sad heart with a smiley face or strong. Or, and I got the message very young, your soft emotions are beautiful. They are a sign that you're a lover that you know how to love, you know how to give. And part of the cost of loving is losing. That is just the law of this land, the law of duality. It's just what happens. You love deeply, that person doesn't love you. You give yourself to a job, you get fired. What? It, it just happens. Your body ages. Oh, my God. I'm looking at you. It looks like you're in your early, your late 40s, early 50s. Is that how old you are? How old are you? Uh, I'm, I'm you don't in tell. 40s. Ageless. Yeah. Uh. Ageless. But guess what? I'm in my 60s. The body is not ageless. I am in a lot of grief these days that mm. my body can't do what it used to do. Mm. So we live in this youth-obsessed culture where I'm always trying to do things that my body can no longer do. I took my grandchildren skiing the other day and I hurt my knee and now I'm hobbling around and I knew I shouldn't go skiing. I knew that that I got to let go of that sport. That is not for me anymore. My knees can't handle it. But I, instead of grieving, mm. feeling deeply, doing a ritual around I can never ski again. I can never run again. It's okay. There's so much else I can do, but I must grieve this loss as opposed to, as you said, drinking it away, being in denial, 
And it's the same thing with the loss of a loved one or a job. We have this word in our culture, closure. You're supposed to get closure and you're supposed to like your mother dies, you get one day off from work and you go back. Like in the old days, the women would wear black for a year and, Mm -hmm. and they would cry or in the Jewish tradition of, of sitting Shiva for a whole year after the person dies or we've, we've lost that. We've lost this understanding that Mm. loss happens. It's okay. If you loved, you're going to lose. Now feel it all the way through and grieve it and say goodbye so that the new life can be born. Mm. Yeah. Takes courage. Takes courage. I, I wanted to get your distinction between um, feeling the grief and acknowledging the grief, embracing the grief. Yet sometimes I meet people that seem to be, um, I guess it's a strong word, but maybe addicted to yeah. the, the suffering and the feeling, and you know they're just always lamenting, and mm. and so. Where is the line? How do we discern Mm. that healthy relationship? Right. I think a a grief, well felt, fully felt, eventually burns something new and lively inside of you. So if you are um, lamenting the same thing year after year after year, it probably means you have not really felt it all the way through. It's more like a complaint and, and a surface in a sense of an injustice to your ego. This should not have happened to me. Mm. This was wrong. This should not have happened to me. It's a lack of acceptance. If you're just a locked in complaint, mm. or if you notice in your life, everything makes you want to complain nothing's right. You never get a fair deal or you're super angry all the time. Often those emotions of complaint and anger and injustice are um, sitting on this cauldron of grief you have not felt. I mean, the great social justice people, sometimes you look at Dr. King's face when he's giving his speech. It is a face of so much grief and so much love and so much acceptance, but so much passion to to do right in the world and not a personal grievance. I look at his face or other um, spiritual social justice people. It's not a personal ego, brittle thing, blameful. It's, It's someone who has felt it all the way down and emerged with great compassion towards self and the world. I mean, joy is, joy is just as important as grief. And joy is the gift of, of grief. Mm. Um, So not right away, you know, someone's child dies. It can take you four or five years to like, yeah. Get through that cauldron. But mm-hmm. eventually, there's some sort of sober joy about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in so many ways, we don't fully access that rich joy because we also don't allow ourselves to feel that grief fully. And we're protecting from it, you know? And so there's a, there's a closure to the grief, but there's, there's also a, a disconnect and a closure to, to the joy at the same time. Yeah. 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 You start another thought, and, and I'm not sure how to articulate this, but I'll try. Um, you talked about um, the skiing and noticing, oh, I shouldn't have done that and have to accept that maybe this is something I need to let go of at this stage of my life and my body. And, you know, in, in and look, you you're in this field, you, you've, you've met all the experts. In this field, there is a sort of empowerment, uh, human potential, like we can do anything and, and you should strive to be your best self, 
you know, and, and so also now with things like biohacking and stem cells and biohacking and like you never have to age and you can be Superman and don't accept limitations of your own human self. And so speak to where is that line between, okay, accepting oneself and one's humanity and one's physical limitation. There's, there's an acceptance and embrace, embrace of that versus striving and pushing and is where does it become where acceptance is maybe giving up or acceptance is settling for i don't want to say mediocrity you know not not being one's best and where is the line because sometimes we also drive ourselves to the point of being our best sometimes from a place of unacceptance or self-hatred even and so we'd love to hear your thoughts on that Yeah, that's such a big one. And I have thoughts. I certainly have not um, figured that one all out. Because as you can see with my skiing story, I'm still (laughs) walking right up and a little beyond the line and then learning. But one thing that caught me, because you described it so beautifully, um, when you said this striving to be our best self. Mm-hmm. Um, the question that came into my mind was, well, what is my best self? And where do I want to put my energy? So oh. I, we each have limited energy. Mm-hmm. It, 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 we have to sleep mm-hmm. and we have to rest. And there's just so many hours in the day and things to do. And what would my best self be? I have to ask myself that. And I think it's a different answer for everyone. For mm-hmm. someone, they might say, I'm going to dedicate my life to, to my body. My body is my temple. God gave me this body. And my life is going to be about how long can a human being live? Will these supplements help me? You know, And that's going to crowd out lots of other things you could do. That's not been my focus. I, I, love, I love the body as, as God's temple. I try to take care of it. I do do exercise. I am into eating well. Mm. That's not my big focus. My focus and my obsession often is where I stretch too far is how can I help uh, with racial injustice, climate change, feminism, like how can I be an activist? But at the same time, how can I be in what I call an innervist, making sure that who I am on the inside matches what I want to see in the world, you know, be the change. I'm constantly pushing myself. Am I being good enough? Am I being active enough? But am I doing my practice enough? Like I have this enormous expectation of of who I'm supposed to be in the world. And I'm always having to ask what you just asked. When am I just getting neurotic and, yes. and um, oh, oh, having this high expectation that nobody else has of me? What, what, just relax, dude. Like, <laughs> enjoy life. Enjoy yourself. You were put here to enjoy yourself and to enjoy the people in your life. Just give it a break for a while. You're never going to solve it all. No one ever has. Mm. Um, Spend as much time as improving yourself as just enjoying life here. So, and I would say if your obsession and skill is in the body and exercise, like ask yourself the same question. Are you driving yourself crazy working out and what do I eat? and And other people will do this with parenting or their art, like we're all obsessed people and we have to learn how to enjoy this life as much as create. So true, so true. What do you see as you, as you look at the last year of what's been going on, um, lots of shifts on the planet, um, from your experience, from your perspective, what is the shift that you see or yeah, what is the shift that you see happening 
for us as a consciousness and as a people and as a humanity. It feels like there's something in the collective that is really shifting and evolving and, and, and transforming in the collective consciousness. So I love your perspective on mm. what, what shifts you feel that you can see happening. The shift I pay much, uh, a lot of attention to is the shift um, from toxic masculinity, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. You know, we have been a species that has been dominated by one aspect of what it means to be human. Mm. The, the, and I, I, it's, these are such inadequate words because I don't mean men bad, women good. It's the male force um, of, of the, the dominating, exploring nature mm. of the male and the feminine of the collaborative, tending, befriending. You know, there's the fight or flight instinct, which is what happens to men under stress. And there's the tend and befriend instinct that mm. happens to more women under stress. And I think there is a shift in men and women and culture. And some people are so alarmed by it, they're fighting it as hard as they can mm -hmm. toward the feminine aspect of the human being that lives in men and women, taking, uh, be, becoming respected, uh, given uh, clout and dignity, and human beings beginning to understand we will not survive as a species if we continue to only respect that part of what it means to be human. We have to respect the feminine and we have to give women a chance to lead and we have to, women have to learn how to trust what naturally is within us mm. and to be teachers of it and to bring everyone along with it because women have been just as brainwashed as yes. men into I gonna, thinking i was gonna like, say that yeah get my foot in the door and i'm gonna lead you know like no no none of us can lead that way anymore mm -hmm. we're, we're gonna change we're gonna do power differently and we're going to trust uh this instinct to care we're going to become a caring economy and and women i really believe if we learn to trust ourselves we can be the leaders in that so, That's the so, shift I feel coming. I'm so glad you said that because I think it, women too have been brainwashed into, into that sort of mis misconception. And so totally. how can, what, okay. What does it, what does it look like? This, this, this shift, this integrated sort of leadership that embraces the feminine. What, what, what can, can you give us a vision for it in the world? Can you give us a sense of, how, mm -hmm. it's, how it looks, how it unfolds, because I don't think we've really had a, uh, a healthy model for long enough to really like know what it looks like. Uh, and so give us uh, some examples. Yeah. Or a vision. I, we, we don't know what it looks like. And yeah. it's very hard to, um, to create something in a, in a, It's a dream, like uh, Toni Morrison, the great writer, she said, dream a little before you think. Oh. And this is when, when I feel like, oh, you're so naive, you women who speak about a new way of doing power. What will it look like? Show us what it will look like. How could it be? That's impossible. That's impossible. There's aggression and war, and you're just going to get run over. And I, I tell myself, I don't have to know exactly what it's going to look like. How can I? It's never been here before. Mm. So we can trust our dreams before we have to have it all thought out and follow our instincts. And this isn't just for women, because yeah. I look at you and I see in you the same lack of trust 
the imposter syndrome that we all have that the world could be a gentler, mm. more equitable place. None of us mm. kind of believe it. We mm. kind of think, no, it's a dog-eat-dog world and it'll mm. never be. We have to believe that it can be. Yeah. And all each one of us has to do is to try to do it in our small circles. I consider my work a small circle. I consider the activist work I do a small circle. I consider my family, my children, my husband, my grandchildren. I have to learn how to trust my instincts that we can communicate instead of aggress on each other. So that when tension happens at work in a meeting, let's say, you shut it down for a while, you ask people, how are you feeling? How do we get through this without disempowering a whole bunch of people and just letting some one person gain from this? Let's talk this through. Let's not go where people always go. It's hard. Mm. It takes a different kind of courage muscle mm. to communicate instead of clamming up and then everybody going back to their offices and just saying shitty things about the other person, you know, like uh, um, mm. bringing forth what is within us in real time, whether it's with your kids or your husband, just two on two, there's enormous work to be done there within relationships. Mm. So we don't all have to be run for office or, a representative at the United Nations, you know, we can do this work yes. in our own arenas and talk about it and be brave about it. And I, I call this the first, first responder work. We think of first responders as firemen and policemen and like big brawny, oh, here I come to save the day. But the first, first responders are the kindergarten teachers, the home health care workers, hmm. the moms and dads, the people who are caring for the children and the most vulnerable um, so that everyone else can do their work. And I, if we can elevate care as a noble first responder, you know, like, yeah, here's my friend Linda. She's a first responder. Oh, she's a fireman? No, no, she teaches preschool. Yeah. She's teaching children how to speak to each other instead of hitting each other. That's mm. where it starts. She's a first, first responder. Mm. Mm. It's really shifting the narrative in a, in a very powerful way. Yeah. yeah. For the men listening to this conversation, uh, I want you to just take a moment to speak to the men. and. You, you shared some things, um, but specifically to the men, is there anything that we can do to support this shift? Is there anything we can do to support the feminine and the women in our lives? Also within ourselves, obviously, but also the women in our lives um, guide us a little bit. Well, I'm going to answer that in in two ways. The first way might sound harsh Please. and the second way won't be. Bring it. My black friends have schooled me now. Don't, don't say to me, how can I help you black people? Mm. It's pretty obvious. Mm. You learn, learn it. It's not rocket science. Stop mm. looking to us your black friends to solve something that white people need to figure out. Okay. Mm. So I have taken that in. That has been a schooling I have mm. gotten. Mm. And at first I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I just am asking you. And then I'm like, no, I get it. I get this. Mm. I don't know if you feel that same way being a black man, like, mm. come on, white people. Mm. Like it's kind of written already. But I feel that way often with men, like when you hear dudes saying awful things about women's bodies in the locker room and it's crude and it's kind of violent, stand up, 
don't let that happen. Don't and don't say like, yeah, she is hot, man. I don't but I'd like to do her, you know, like don't get involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you be a leader in what you know is right. And it takes courage. Yeah. It takes courage to uh, disrupt cultural norms that are hurtful to people. It takes mm-hmm. courage to even understand. Oh, I see how that could be hurtful. No, you weren't just kidding around. That hurt somebody. So learn about it and 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 take responsibility. Okay, so that's that's one thing. That's the harsh one. <laughs> now I'm going to do the, the message, message received of the <laughs> But then I think you know I have three sons. I've been mm-hmm. married twice. Not at the same time, obviously. Um, to men, I love men. Mm. I don't look at men as a block of people who are all bad or aggressive or anything. I know just as aggressive women. So, mm-hmm. um, I I am not looking to men, and neither are feminists, to be like women. You know how we say. Girls can be anything a boy can be. And girls feel great when they hear that. Mm. But I want us to be able to say boys can be anything a girl can be. And I don't want that to sound weird, like meaning boys, you can and you should be as caring, as loving, as communicative, as in touch with your feelings, Mm. as unafraid of being weak of of proud of your vulnerability Mm. you can be that way too and it's a wonderful thing to be oh my god i am so happy to be a woman i love being a woman i love being an emotional creature Mm. and and being a romantic feminist i i love my my womanhood and I want men to love their malehood, but I want them to know they're missing out on a whole big hunk of humanity in themselves. <laughs> Just like I've had to learn how to be strong, strategic. Mm. I've had to learn how to find my power, make money, mm. get what I want through through negotiation. I've I've had to learn these things. I've wanted to learn these things. I've needed to learn these things. Men have to want and need to learn these other parts of themselves, and they'll be happier and better off. Beautiful. You know, we, we often don't hear that, that, that the phrase, you're right. You know, boys, you can be anything, you, you know, that a girl can be. We, we don't hear that in reverse, you know, so it's, it's a, uh, do you know the work of Tony Porter? No. You you might want to have him on your show. He has the most wonderful organization, um, A Call to Men. Mm. And he talks about men being in the man box, boxed in to this little way of being that the messages start so young for boys about not feeling and crying and not, being in relationship with other men and the fear of homophobia and and all the ways men just like are boxed in to a way of being mm. and his work mostly with uh teenage boys and um uh mostly african-american boys uh but uh, white boys too his work is so powerful helping men get out of the male bo- the man box amazing it's time. I'm so I'm so glad you're you're speaking about this, and uh, I'm actually very excited to read now read your book, Cassandra. So I'm going to be on it, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely encourage every, anyone listening in to join me in reading in reading Cassandra as well. It's it I think it speaks to some of these themes. Yes. It does, so yeah. I'm really looking forward to that, Elizabeth. Honestly, I I just I'm so loving this conversation and just. I'm feeling you all the way here. Um, final question. Um, 
If you were to reflect on your entire life, all of your experiences, ups, downs, mistakes, relationships, raising two boys, two marriages, you said, uh, building Omega, writing, um, and everything you've done, if you were to look at the most important, and obviously there may be more, but to distill the most important three lessons or three keys that you feel the most important things you've learned in your life that if you could pass only these three things to the next generation as a gift to evolve the next generation the most, mm. what would those three keys be? Mm. Wow. This is going to be fast thinking on my part. <laughs> <laughs> no um, okay. I would say one one of the most important things that I have learned is, and I, I, I write about this in my book, Broken Open, I, I use the phrase, we're all bozos on the bus. Mm. And by that, I mean, we don't have to be perfect. There's such a striving for perfection and such a fear that we're not living up to what everybody else is like. Somehow there's something uniquely wrong about me. And I'm so ashamed. There's so much shame we all cart around this shame. Then we hide out from each other because we're afraid to show who we really are. Then we miss out. So I like to always remind myself, we're bozos on the bus, all of us, unfinished people born into a world without an instruction manual. It's okay. It's okay to be not perfect, make mistakes. So that's the first thing. Be a bozo on the bus with the other bozos and enjoy yourself. It's a bumpy ride. It's okay. Yes. Um, the other one is, let's see. Well, I love that quote I said from Howard Thurman that don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and do that. Because what the world needs are people who have come alive. So find your thing. And it doesn't have to be earth-shattering, life-changing. No one's ever done it before. Just find your bliss mm. and let that be your compass as opposed to some thought you have about what you're supposed to be, your authenticity. Mm. Find that authentic core. It's hard, but it's worth it. Awesome. Third, third thing. Um, well, I think this is really important right now for where we are as a country. It's a little slogan I've come up with. It's not either or, but both and more. It's not Republican, Democrat, one, the other. It's not either or, it's both. And then it's more. It's the marriage. We all need each other. It's not black or white. It's not man or woman. It's both and more. So not to get hung up in defining ourselves as just one thing or the other, but to expand, expand and open and see in this other person who you might have put into a box, that person is so much more. I love it. The whole, the Tao. It's beautiful. Wow. We don't have to be perfect and really finding that thing that makes you come alive, as Howard Thurman says. And uh, it's not, e I love the slogan, it's not either or, but, but both. It's not either or, but both and more. It's beautiful. Three keys from the amazing Elizabeth Lesser. Elizabeth, thank you for sharing your heart, your wisdom, your experience. I feel truly blessed. Um, can you assign like a simple homework assignment, some, uh, something very simple that those listening in can do immediately right now to just put what you've said in practice? Is there some, something simple that they can do? Well, if you've been putting off having a difficult, true conversation with someone who's safe, not, not like, you know, don't think of like the worst person in your life, but somebody who like, it would really make things better if you could just mm. say, you know what happened the other day? This is what I felt. I want to know what you felt. Mm. I know we can get somewhere different, not either or, 
but both of us and then more, what would happen? Um, be brave and try it out. Beautiful. Having a difficult conversation with someone that is safe and beginning deepening the, the, the relationship and authenticity. Awesome. What's the best way people can find out about you and your work and best websites? Uh, would love that people can stay in touch with you. My website has, you know, also Omega's website linked on it and it has my Facebook and Instagram, etc. So my website is elizabethlesser.org.org. Awesome. Awesome. Folks, you heard it, elizabethlesser.org. Uh, thoroughly uh, encourage all of you to check out her, her work and her amazing books and uh, keeping my fingers crossed that Omega open soon and want to encourage all of you to check out Omega and uh, be blessed. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Everyone, thank you for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by today's conversation. Send me an email at cootblackson at cootblackson.com. Uh, we'd love to hear your key takeaways from today's episode. Share, share it with your friends, post on Facebook and Instagram and uh, connect with you next week. Love now. Big hugs. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at cooplaxon.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.